Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore police sergeant. In the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we are joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, their families, and the community. We'll also be discussing issues in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Check out our daily articles on our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Today Radio Show is brought to you in part by Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725 online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the dedicated and highly specialized treatment they need at Transformations. Their program features first responders and veterans therapists helping first responders and veterans. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. Joining us from Chicago, Illinois area, Nick Gore on the phone. Nick, thanks for joining us on the Law Enforcement Today show. I appreciate you having me on. And Nick, by the way, for folks who are just tuning in, most of our guests, not all of them, most of our guests are law enforcement officers, active, retired family members, spouses, siblings, some supporters that do organizations to help. Also, we have people who are victims of violent crime that want to tell their stories of survival. Uh, Nick is in in a different category, uh, and you'll understand why we have Nick on this show in a little bit. We're going to talk about something that's very prevalent in the United States that people are up in arms about and should be. Uh, It is the drug addiction, in particular opiate addiction problem, crisis problem going in the United States. Uh, Nick, thanks for coming on the air to talk about your situation and your story. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And, uh, you know, I may not wear a badge, but I definitely know what it's like to go through battle with with an opiate addiction. Yeah, and we've had... We've had law enforcement officers on the show who have become addicted to opiates as a result of having multiple orthopedic surgeries. And there, there are many ways that people be, can fall into a problem with these things. And uh, it, right away, people want to have a disagreement. There's people who have opinions. We're not here to change anyone's opinion. We're not here to tell people our opinion is right, yours is wrong. What we're here to do is tell your story of how you became an addict that you are a recovering addict now and and how what you're doing with that experience and we're not going to try to change people's minds or debate you're just telling your story right most definitely most definitely i think that you know your first line there was saying that you know you've had law enforcement officials on on the show who suffer from uh from addiction and you know drug addiction and alcoholism is the only thing in the entire world i've ever come across that is non-discriminatory it doesn't care where you come from who you are what your upbringing is race gender creed whatever it it is completely non-discriminatory and it, it affects you know way more people than you know and, oh, yeah. and than you'll ever know because a lot of us you know who do suffer from 
from mental illness, substance abuse, uh, you know, suffer in silence. And it's the families that are that ultimately end up paying the biggest toll alongside the addict. And they do. The families really, really suffer. And every law enforcement officer, every first responder I know, whether it be EMTs, they have been dealing with this for decades. I mean, uh, since before I was a rookie police, which was, I was a rookie in 1980. I wasn't even born yet. They're on, well, thanks for making me feel really old. They're on the front lines seeing what happens when it deal with drug addiction, alcoholism, the calls for service, uh, all the things that happen, the overdoses. I, I personally have lost count of how many uh, overdose deaths I was at the scene of uh, in the 1980s and early 90s. Uh, and the way it was in Baltimore back then, if you had what they called a hot shot, you know, if, if there was a report of a, an overdose, from, particularly from heroin, then that area got flooded with buyers uh, sure, because sure. it was super strong. And You want to go where the good stuff is. Well, that's what happened. And, and we were there, and they, these people were dying, and they were in their teens, in their 20s, and their 30s. Then you had another class of addict who had been uh, a long-term opiate addict um, and had, had the boxing glove hands, uh, the, the veins that disappeared, the uh, ulcerated skin, everything else, that had been dealing with this for decades. Yes. I mean, this is something that's been going on, you know, like you said, for for as long as history can tell, right, in one way, shape, or form. And, um, you know, when law enforcement officials meet, you know, first responders, any any sort of first responder, they're meeting those people at the end of their rope, right? Yes. And, or hopefully at the end of their rope that this is going to be, you know, a consequential enough bottom for them to get sober. And what doesn't get seen is everything that's led up to that point. You know, growing up, like, I had no intention of being, you know, a heroin addict, an alcoholic, a, you know, a felon. I had, you know, everything going for me on the outside. And, you know, that all disappeared when, when I got uh, uh, sick with kidney stones and I a little white pad came out and my first prescription for opiate narcotics, you know, ended up in my hand and ultimately down my throat and into a whole new world, which, you know, none of my family had ever been accustomed to. So this is, you know, how you get there is it's a long, drawn-out process. And unfortunately, first responders see the end of it. And, and rightfully so, they get a little bit of a bad taste in their mouth because, you know, the person that they're meeting at the end of the end of their rope isn't the person that, you know, took that first pill or that drug and became the monster that they're dealing with. Right. And and it does it does devastating things to that individual. It does devastating things to their family members. Uh, I personally, we have come to know many, many people that are recovering people because a huge community in particularly in uh, sure. Palm Beach County and Northern Broward County of recovering people that have been sober a while, clean and sober, doing well. And then for whatever reason, uh, insanity is the only thing I can come up with. They decide to pick back up again and they die and, and they're dying quickly. Well, it's, you know, from what we see, so I work with transformations and also with a, a nonprofit organization called the Man and Recovery Foundation. And what we're seeing is those long periods of, of abstinence, right? And a program of recovery has taken place in their life, taken shape. Um, they've gotten things back in their life that they've worked so hard for. And, you know, they, they kind of go back to resting on their laurels, yeah. you know, the things that got them into the place of, uh, you know, serenity, you know, sanity being restored to their life. They stopped doing and you know, that, that just that momentary decision of, you know, I can do one more, it's going to be all right, you know, takes place. And, you know, unfortunately, so many don't come back. And it's because, you know, for a ton of different reasons, fentanyl is now a thing in the U.S. It's here to stay. Um, and you know, their tolerance is way back, is way down. So, you know, they go back to using, you know, what they think they could use. And 
it's it's the end of the road for them. Yeah. It's just where where it ends, and then you have you know that's when the grieving mothers and you know family members are are, are speaking out on it. So no one wants to speak out on it when when it's going on. It's at the end of the rope because it's a stigma thing. They don't want to be seen as less than or that their child is weak or their family member is you know gone off the deep end. So you know we could talk for days on just that topic alone Absolutely. with the stigma, but it's you know <laughs> it it just is it's not ending. Well, there, is it getting a, a little bit better? Sure, in it, some it areas. Is, it is getting better, and I think we're getting more aware, but still, every day, there's someone who's becoming addicted to opiates. Uh, and one of the ways that it happens, and I'm no expert, is that these youngsters get introduced to it either through orthopedic injuries, uh, doctors, uh, over-prescribing of heavy-duty opiates after surgeries, and or mom and dad's medicine cabinet. My first drug dealer was my grandparents' medicine cabinet. Yeah, you know they and were. They didn't even they were know. On pers- no, they, the only time that they knew was when I had left. You know, just one or two in there after a full prescription had been filled. You know, a day or two prior, and that was the only way. It, you know that they they knew anything about it. Uh, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I was out in Boston at Harvard Medical School, and I was working with an uh, an organization called PARI, and that's Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative, where you can go in the police department, and they had people, you know, from Harvard. You know, Harvard Medical asking questions to figure out how to curb this. So, you know, the quote unquote experts still have just as many questions as as we do trying to help fix this thing. Well, I know one thing for sure. We as as a community, I mean, not just me here in South Florida, not just you in Chicago, but in our own neighborhoods, we need to start talking more. We need to have conversations more and, and don't have those whispered, hushed conversations about Johnny down the street that, you know, got into bad trouble, hung with a bad crowd, and now he's off in rehab or, or now he's in jail. We need to start calling it like it is because uh, people are people's lives are on the line, for lack of better words. That's the truth. That is the absolute truth. And, you know, destigmatizing it. And, and again, where do you begin with that? The con- the honest conversation. We do a lot of programs where we're, we're in the schools during the day and we're educating the kids on what, you know, addiction looks like, how it starts, who you associate with, you know, speaking out on your friend's behalf. Everyone wants this mentality of don't snitch. You know, we know where snitches end up. Like, no, if you snitch on your friend, you know, who may be suffering from something way deeper down with mental illness or some trauma in the past, you know, speaking out on their behalf is, you know, what could ultimately send their life. And we, you know, parlay that into a parent's program at night saying, listen, get in your kid's cell phones, get in your kid's lives, you know, figure out what's going on. And, you know, privacy with your child's life should not exist, if if you know what I mean. As long as... As they are breathing in and out, there's hope. It's when they die that all hope is lost. We're talking with Nick Gore. We're talking about drug addiction, alcoholism. We're going to talk about his story uh, and maybe open some eyes on how people become addicted and then how he takes his experience to help first responders. You listen to Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. We all know that law enforcement, first responders, and military have dangerous jobs. They see and experience traumas that most can't even imagine. And all too often, that takes a toll leading to substance abuse, PTSD, and co-occurring mental health disorders. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to helping protect those who protect. Call 888-991-9725 online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments 
for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the dedicated and highly specialized treatment they need at Transformations. Their program features first responders and veterans therapists helping first responders and veterans. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. Do you owe back taxes to the IRS? Newsflash, the president has changed the tax laws. And now you may be able to pay the IRS less. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, the tax doctor can help you pay the IRS as little as possible allowed by law. There are new tax laws for business owners, the self-employed, even W-2 workers. If you have a back tax problem or a few years of unfilled returns, new help to save you money is now here. Call right now to see how the new tax laws can help you. Plus, right now, we'll waive the consultation fee and give you a free tax savings report. Attention business owners, the self-employed, and W-2 workers. Make this free call to the tax doctor now and learn how to take advantage of the new tax laws that may help you pay the IRS less. 800-663-5107. 800-663-5107. That's 800-663-5107. 800-663-5107. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Left Chest Society t-shirts from honor-line.com. These unique tombstone-themed t-shirts are designed by a career law enforcement officer, art by one of the nation's top artists. Check them out online at honor-line.com. Get one or get all three. Use promo code LET at checkout at honor-line.com and get 10% off. Go to honor-line.com and use promo code LET at checkout to save 10%. That's Left Chess Society t-shirts only at honor-line.com. Use promo code LET to save 10%. That's promo code LET at honor-line.com. Back to the Law Enforcement Today show. Joining us on the phone, calling from Chicago, we have Nick Gore. Nick, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's my pleasure. And I'm glad we're talking about, we're having, a, I, I believe, a candid conversation about drug addiction. And we're going to talk about your story in just a moment. You know, one of the things I always say, it, it, this is not new. We've had drug addiction problems since the Civil War, uh, especially with the opiates and, and morphine and all that stuff. The, none of this is new. And people act as if all of a sudden it came out of nowhere. And, and part of me, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, when this stuff was going on in the poor neighborhoods of inner cities, people didn't seem to care. When it became spread out into suburbia, then all of a sudden, hey, we got to do something. You know, and I'm not trying to chastise people. I'm just saying this has been something that we have ignored for well over 100 years. Absolutely. It was, it's isolated. You know, it was isolated. It was just, you don't go to that area, stay away from that area. It'll never come into our area. 
And, you know, now that it, now that it's spread out, like you said, in suburbia, there's no stopping it. And, you know, I'll credit social media too, you know, to, you know, bringing this, you know, more to the forefront, good, bad, and ugly. You know, yes. people are chastised when they relapse. We see celebrities all the time who are, who are out there doing their thing and in, in recovery and, you know, they relapse and, you know, it gives recovery kind of a bad name. Are we you know, seeing the, that pro athletes do it? We just had one. I don't want to talk about his story. I mentioned in the news that this is a guy who was suspended, I think, for the last three seasons, finally got a shot with another team, was doing really well, and boom, off the deep end. See you later. Yeah, See and you it, later, it, it, it is Mental absolutely health. mind-boggling that people would choose this. And I use that term loosely, choose, because when someone's in the throes of addiction, there's not a whole lot of choice. You are, you're preaching to the choir with that. You know, the, the only choice that you have is when you put that first one in. Anything after that, you know, is game, game on, or game over, I should say. You, you lose that power of true choice. You know, all the things that I went through in my life, like if it was just, you know, because I made bad choices, I would have learned long ago that choices would have been, you know, differently made so that I didn't, you know, experience the consequences that I did. If I had that willpower, to just make a choice and get my life together, I, to be honest, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. And we've it heard would have that. never gone down the rabbit hole. We've, we've heard that from people for, for eons, and yet there, there's a certain segment of the population that will not believe that. And I, I don't want to try to convince them otherwise. They can have their opinions. When you are a police officer and you get called to someone's house, you know, every, every Friday because dad's been drinking and he's out of his mind drunk and he's beating the family, you know about alcoholism. When you were called as a first responder to a house because it's a drug overdose uh, or the, the teenage son or daughter has been stealing from the family to support their habit, you know about drug addiction. You see what it happens sure. to them. Any arguments about choice, willpower, and that doesn't really matter because it doesn't change the facts. It does not. It does not. And. <laughs> Again, you know, they're they're seeing the the end of the rope and the facts don't man, they don't lie. Everything that has led to that point, you know, it it's just cultivated into just absolute chaos. You know, the the choices that I made along the way, I'm accountable for. 100%. Yes. I did them. I can own them, you know, today through a program of recovery. I'm able to accept those, but along the way, like I was just fighting to get my next, you know, to not be sick. You know, <laughs> dope sick is a real thing. And I, you know, I still, I've stolen from my own mother so that I can just continue on my way. Like morally, like I was brought up better than that. You know, my parents, you know, it wasn't a bad, it wasn't because I had bad parents, you know, the devil came out inside of me in, in my addiction. And, you know, I've stolen from family, friends, employers, everything just so I could feed my, feed my addiction. And it's hard, it's, it's, it's hard not to be angry at the person that does that. You know, I, I say this, be angry at the crime they committed, for lack of better words, and still try to have some compassion for the sick and suffering person. It's not easy Amen. to do from the outside. Amen. You know, when, I, and, you know, I guess I'll ask you a question. When you're in the back of a, when you had someone in the back of your squad car, you know, after who had just ripped off their mom or, you know, put in whatever crime you want there, did we, did, does anybody really ask what led them to that? You know, what, what went on? To from get my to own that experience, point? we already knew. And they knew that we knew. And without playing that whole game, they knew that sure. we knew that they, we, ever, the gig was up and it had been up for a long time. And there were right. times actually where I would you know, say to them, man to man, when are you going to do something about this? When are you going to deal with this problem? Because 
I, I, I know I knew you when you were a kid. Right. I knew you didn't plan to be this guy, but yet here you are stealing from your mom. Right. Well, recovery is for those who want it, not those who need it. Yeah. Because if you know, if it was for everybody who needed it, <laughs> we'd have a much larger, you know, recovery population, you know, amongst us. One of the things you said earlier, I think that needs to be talked about more as you're accountable for the choices you made. Absolutely. Absolutely. And once recovery took place, you know, I was able to go back and right those wrongs because that's what sets me free, you know, in my in my recovery. Because if I'm not going back and correcting the things that I've done wrong, you know, then then this is all for nothing. Those are the things that are going to keep me sick. And, you know, going back and making amends to people that, to be honest, don't want to hear them. I've tried to make amends with people and they've told me to kind of buzz off. I want nothing to do with you. I'm glad you're sober. I'm glad you're well, but leave me alone. You know, restitution, going back and, you know, facing those people that you've hurt is, it's a, it's, Man, it's kind of demoralizing in a sense because you have to relive that, and you know you're standing in front of them not as the same person, but the last thing they remember is what you did to them. So to be accountable for them, you know, this is what I've done. I can own it today, and what can I do to make it right? And more times than not, people just want to be like, "Dude, Nick, like you were just so sick, you were so bad. You being sober and well is all that we want, and that's all that we pray for." Well, it's good that you said that because that's a, a point that a lot of people don't get that the person. The addicted person, the alcoholic person may not be responsible for their disease, but they're certainly responsible and accountable for their actions and the harms they've done others. And that, if I'm reading you right, you are responsible for correcting that and repairing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, you know, that is, uh, you know, going back and, and facing, you know, you said earlier, facing the facts of everything that's gone on. That's that's really like where it, it sets you free in your recovery. And that's how I stay in recovery. You know, even, you know, take this a step further in my day to day life. Now, I'm not perfect. I mess stuff up all the time. You can, you know, we can call my fiance up on the phone here and, and ask her how I'm imperfect I am. But when I do things that aren't, you know, you know, appeasing to other people, you know, I go back and I, I fix that right away because those things stack up and they mount up and those are the things that will ultimately, you know, keep me in my own skin and where my skin will start to tighten and, you know, insanity starts to come back into my life. And before you know it, I've stepped away from all the things that have kept me sane and I'm looking for the next drink or the next, you know, bag of dope so that I can just escape the, the punishing circumstances that are present in my life then and there. I'm glad you're doing well. Before we go to break, I do have to tell a story of, that happened down here uh, about a year or two ago in uh, the Delray Beach area of Florida. Uh, a young lady, uh, originally from New Jersey, had been sober a couple of years, doing well, uh, recovering uh, drug addict and alcoholic. That's how she described herself. And then she went missing. And we were searching. The people of the community searched for days trying to find her. And eventually found her in her vehicle uh, in a parking lot of a shopping center uh, where she had overdosed on on opiates and died alone in a in a car and was left there for several days and that's the stark reality of what we're dealing with that's the stark reality of what happens with a lot of these people it's not like hollywood portrays a lot there's not a lot of term people use partying there's not a big party it's not a big social thing it's it's a lonely isolated withdrawn yep. deadly situation uh, that, that all 
if left unchecked, will always end up with jails, institutions, and or death. We're talking with Nick Gore, recovering drug addict, and we're going to be talking when we return from break about what he's doing to take his experience to help others. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Epidemic. America's public health crisis. These are all terms that describe the current problem of drug and alcohol abuse in the United States. Countless lives are lost and heartbroken families are too many to count. Transformations Treatment Center is dedicated to saving lives. Call 888-991-9725 and online at transformationstreatment.center. Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for addiction, substance abuse, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Transformations Treatment Center has many acclaimed treatment programs offering rehabilitation and holistic treatment for all those suffering from substance abuse problems. Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725 and online at transformationstreatment.center. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You've messed up your daughter's haircut. Do you, A, get spiritual? Mom, where's the mirror? Beauty is within. Oh. B, find the positives. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or C, show empathy. Mom, you really don't have twinsies. I kind of love it. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Returning our conversation with Nick Gore. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Nick is a recovering drug addict. That's a term he uses. I'm not labeling the guy. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I said it, but I want people to understand that I'm not sitting here saying that in a judgmental fashion. Nick, you you said something very powerful at the very beginning of the interview. You said you didn't start off your life wanting to be a felon, a drug addict, an alcoholic. That this was not the path you chose for yourself. It's it's most certainly not the path that I chose. It um, growing up as a kid, and I'm, I'll condense my story as as quick as possible. Yeah, the readers digest. Family-friendly version. I can definitely do that. So, uh, you know, growing up, I have I have a younger brother who went on to be in the Marines. He's highly successful. He's a first responder himself. You know, I was raised in the same home as him, the same rules, same everything. And he went on his way. I went on my way. And growing up playing playing hockey, you know, super involved with that, super involved with school. And, you know, honor roll, that was a stipulation that my parents had is you have to be you know, academically astute to continue, uh, for us to continue to pay for your hockey. And that was, you know, that's what we lived, eat, that's what we ate, that's what we breathed. And, but growing up, I'll be honest, like, you know, everything looked great on the outside. However, you know, I never felt like I completely fit in for whatever reason. My skin always felt a little bit too tight. And when I was uh, 19 years old, I had the, the great luxury of going out to Cleveland, Ohio to play junior hockey out, out there. And shortly into I shouldn't say shortly, at the end of my end of my first year out there, I ended up getting diagnosed with a 19-millimeter kidney stone. Now, leading up to that point, you know, I had drank. You know, I had smoked pot with my friends. We um, we partied. It was it was nothing consequential. It didn't get too crazy. We did what, you know, what every quote-unquote normal kid was doing at that time. And 
I woke up one day in Cleveland really sick. I um, was vomiting and had excruciating pain in my back and got rushed to the ER and was diagnosed with 19 millimeter kidney stone, which is um, which is no joke. And you know, every every female that I tell this to kind of you know snickers, but they get it. Is that was like my version of childbirth. And when I was in the in the hospital, they gave me this amazing thing called you know an opiate narcotic and. You know, that drug right away instantly did two things. It took away the physical pain of the kidney stone, and it also took away that emotional discomfort that I felt. So that drug did for me what I couldn't do for myself. For an entire year, I was in and out of doctor's offices. I was um, under minor surgeries, had stent placement, all that good stuff. And uh, shortly, it was about 11 months, I should say, and into it, and I was given a clean bill of health. And when you're given a clean bill of health, they don't, continue to prescribe you opiate narcotics and that's kind of when the when the game changed those those pills were no longer available and i started seeking them out from you know from outside sources you know going to the er with made up things people's medicine cabinets my grandparents we called doctor shopping and all that yeah absolutely um which there's laws and and rules now with that which is amazing but it, it took a it took six years, uh, five or six years for me to finally realize I had a problem. And it was when I, um, the first time I could really see I had a problem, I ended up in northern Wisconsin jail with um, residential burglary and uh, possession charges. I had stolen some pills from my grandma's friend who, um, you know, you want to talk about how sick I was. I took pills, you know, Vicodin from my grandma's friend who had a liver transplant. Thank- thankfully, she was on the mend and didn't need them anymore. But you know, I went into my grandmother's friend's house and took, you know, her, her painkillers from a from a liver transplant. And that, so you, I, you say that I I know I can tell by the tone of your voice when you say that that even though that was many years ago, and even though you're sober, clean and sober now, that still bothers you a bit. It's absolutely it. it, it you know, I, I there there's been some I, I've made amends with her. You know, there's been some redemption, I guess, in in a sense. There's um, but yeah, that's painful. I mean, that's. That's not how I was raised. No, you know, and that's the type of thing that it's so, it, it, it's, what I was talking earlier, it's so difficult to separate the act from the actor right. that that you want to say, what what is wrong with you? Who who in their right mind does that? And that right there is the answer. No one in their right mind does that. Someone who's very sick does that. You're right, and that's, you know, I was, if I well, I'm not going to bring in a cancer patient or anything like that. But no one's. My dad has cancer really bad right now, and no one's mad at him for being sick and watching him suffer, and you know, having him, you know, um, go through the trials that he's going through. You know, it. It's not a choice that he's he's made, but he's kind of lost that power of choice. If you get if you see where I'm going with, I that. get I get where you're going, and I, and I I can see where a lot of people say I understand what you're saying, and others will go, yeah, but there's a difference. Uh, the difference is that. You know, my father passed away from cancer, and when he was suffering from cancer, and I'm, I'm not saying this judgmentally, when he was suffering from cancer, he didn't inflict pain on us and steal from us. So that's where I liked when you said earlier that I'm accountable for what I did. Yep. And that's and, and, the part I think that most people go, I, I've never thought of that that way. Whether they be a suffering person or, or a family member or someone who's suffering, or even a first responder says, dude, I'm hauling you off to jail. You do what you gotta do, obviously, as a, as a police officer, but how do we help change you know, I, that? 
and, and absolutely. And I was like, every time I was arrested, you know, that was just the first one. I had gone, you know, to jail several times after that. I appreciate what the police did. You know, them putting me in jail and the prosecutor, you know, sticking the charges that he did, that kept me alive in the midst of it. You know, that's a complete godsend because the way that I was running and gunning, I my next stop was the morgue. I'd been to jail. You know, I went yeah. to rehab shortly after my first trip um, to jail, and it was going to be, you know, the morgue was next. And so, you know, heroin came into play. I, I after I got out of jail, I, I got sober. I, I ended up dating a girl in rehab, which you, you never do in early recovery. And we were introduced to heroin, and uh, the game had completely changed. So, you know, I'd done, I've done heroin, you know, for a year to the point where the, the discomfort and the pain was enough that I, I went to rehab again for the second time. I was in the same treatment center within a year apart, um, completely broken, spiritually bankrupt, and mentally, emotionally exhausted. And I, I, was in, I was in rehab once again and admitted heroin addict. Now, that's not, again, I remember walking in there thinking, this isn't where I parked my car. Like, how yeah. am I here right now? And I was so broken at that point that I ended up writing two suicide notes. I wrote one to the treatment center apologizing to them um, that their program didn't work for me. And one to my one to my parents and my family saying, I'm sorry for everything I've done to you. And this is the only option that is left for me because I'm causing too much pain in everyone's life and I can't live this way. So suicide, you know, I don't have any of that in my family. I've never really been introduced to it until that day in rehab when that was the only option left. Long story short, I ended up leaving rehab that day. I, I hailed a cab to my parents' house and uh, was going to end it all. And I, my dad's safe was locked. You know, his guns were not available. And, you know, I took some drastic measures. I'm not going to get into the grim details of it, but I ended up on the sixth floor that day of the psych ward figuring out what is really going on, and that's what broke me. So I was sober for, you know, just under four years. Um, I had gone back and done a lot of things that uh, – you know, I, I figured if I did enough good, it would erase a lot of the bad I did. So I started, you know, publicly speaking on my story. I went, you know, to high schools, colleges, doctors. I helped pass some legislation in Illinois for prescription pill monitoring programs. Um, the same, you know, the same people I was working with, or, you know, I was, I was getting my drugs from, uh, you know, shortly before that. And I'm now working with to help combat this. And, you know, I was on TV shows, uh, documentaries, all that stuff is cool, right? It sounds great. However, as an alcoholic and a drug addict, that stuff feeds my ego and all the stuff, kind of how we talked earlier, that kept me sober, I started walking away from. That emotional discomfort came back. My skin was, you know, two sizes too small. I'm working with police chief associations, state's attorneys, coroner's offices, all these first responders, you know, dying inside, sick and suffering that, um, by the grace of God, on October 30th of 2016, I put my hand up, and I pray it's the last time I ever have to put my hand up, and I ask for help. It was the first time in my life, in, in, in my active addiction, that I was looking for help to avoid, you know, to not go to jail so I could keep things in my life. I was willing to bring everything to the altar, to leave everything behind in my past, and just be well. All I wanted was everything to be okay. And I went into treatment for three months, and I succumbed to the process. I stopped trying to do my thinking. I let other people do thinking for me. Um, you know, the same sick drug addict mind that brought me in there is not going to get me out of the situation. And, that makes perfect you know, sense. We've got the short break. We are talking with Nick Gore. Uh, Nick is a recovering drug addict. And when we return, we're going to talk about how he uses his experience to help others, especially helping first responders who develop problems with 
PTSD, co-occurring mental health disorders, and substance abuse. You're listening to the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Do you owe back taxes to the IRS? Newsflash, the president has changed the tax laws. And now, you may be able to pay the IRS less. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, the tax doctor can help you pay the IRS as little as possible allowed by law. There are new tax laws for business owners, the self-employed, even W-2 workers. If you have a back tax problem or a few years of unfilled returns, new help to save you money is now here. Call right now to see how the new tax Tax laws can help you. Plus, right now, we'll waive the consultation fee and give you a free tax savings report. Attention business owners, the self-employed, and W-2 workers. Make this free call to the tax doctor now and learn how to take advantage of the new tax laws that may help you pay the IRS less. 800-663-5107. 800-663-5107. 800-663-5107. That's 800-663-5107. Are you struggling with vision loss as you get older? Do you have a child who is blind or losing their vision? Are you a blind person wondering how you'll succeed in school, at work, or as a parent? We can help. The National Federation of the Blind knows that blindness doesn't have to keep you from living the life you want. We invite you to learn more about us and how we can help at nfb.org. The National Federation of the Blind. Live the life you want. Back to our conversation with Nick Gore. Nick is a recovering drug addict, and Nick was talking a little bit about his prior experience. You, you've been sober a couple times. This time, how long has it been? Uh, two years, just over two years. That's um, a good that's, months. That's a good, good thing compared to the the darkness and the ugliness that happens with uh, active drug addiction and alcoholism. I'm thrilled to hear that. I'm sure your family members are as well. One of the things that you have mentioned is that you've taken your time, and when you were sober before, you spent a lot of time working with first responders and police chiefs and talking with them, and you are doing some of that now to try to help first responders. So right off the face of this, people would say, what's this drug addict guy that's sober and recovering now going to do to help cops and firefighters and EMTs. What it the sounds heck like a know? punchline to it, a joke. It does. Right? Like a, a drug a addict, heroin addict a, is working yeah, with the police. <laughs> yeah, they walk into a bar together, what happened? It does sound like a joke. But right. my hat's off to you because the truth is, whenever we watch movies, Hollywood portrays any cop flick, any cop movie, any cop show, same with firefighters, that they'll have at least one character who is a knockdown, drag out drunk, maybe doing pills, has been divorced a couple times, he's suicidal, doesn't get to see his kids, and, and that they they play this guy off as being just a bad guy, uh, you know, and oftentimes doesn't get along with other people. And I watch those shows now, and I go, that's probably a man or a woman who's got probably PTSD and certainly has a substance abuse problem. Yep. It's yeah. not new. So when I start, when I first started working with the police way back in the day, it was just to bring education out to the community. And while I was doing that, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I was pulled aside by someone, you know, whether it's someone from their CIT team, whether it's a sergeant or, you know, even a chief saying like, you know, I, I get this. I understand it all. Help me explain a little bit more. And I explain a little bit more and they'd be like, well, I got this guy in my department that I think may be suffering from some of that. Yeah. 
and then we you know we'd have a conversation we'd help guide that person you know guy or, or, or female to to some sort of treatment so when i got sober this time i had the great opportunity to um one of my my nearest and dearest friends tim ryan is the national director of outreach for transformation treatment center and also runs a man and recovery foundation um i kind of got hooked back up with him and He's like, you know, we're looking for someone in our business development department to um, kind of support me, Randy Grimes, who does a lot of the professional athlete stuff, and and a guy. Yeah, he's a retired Stockton. football player, Randy, right? Pro football yeah, player. Yeah, Randy Grimes. Yeah, sober, sober, ten years. You know, Pro Bowler, All American. He's got a crazy story. Um, what of a? He's coming to my wedding here in the next in twenty four days. Not that I'm counting. Um, he's become a really close friend. So. I got plugged in with Transformations, and they have an amazing first responder program that's run by a first responder, Carlos Farina, 30-year sheriff deputy of Vietnam vet, you know, and was tired of seeing all of his brothers and sisters, you know, suffering from PTSD and alcoholism and drug addiction ultimately lead to suicide. So I sat down with them. I'll make a real long story short. I said, this is where I need to be. This is, you know, this is where my passion lays, you know, people who stand on the front lines. The only thing that I can really relate it to is when I was sober the first time is standing on the front lines of being, you know, in recovery, right? Like what it looks like today. Unfortunately, you know, I had to go back out there and do some more research and ultimately get sober. But I understand like the the pressure that's involved with that. I know that that's really pales in comparison to chasing someone down in a high speed chase or seeing the things that they do. But I, I have such a deep love for first responders. Um, they're They're all over my family and seeing what they do and hearing their stories and ultimately seeing some of the suffering that their friends do, it has really driven me to help kind of get this out there. I understand what it's like to suffer in silence. And I, after traveling all over the country and working with police departments, I see how that is, you know, it's so stigmatized it that, is. that we are the, we're the people who give help, we don't get help. And I was at a, an event downtown in Chicago and it was in conjunction with all the local agencies, fire departments in Chicago, and they were talking about suicide. And the leading contributor to that is mental health as well as addiction. And, you know, a guy said it beautifully. He goes, every scene, every every call that I had, I picked up a little pebble and I put it in my backpack. And over the years, it ultimately just, you know, brought me down. He came home and he saw his cat um, was dead and he absolutely lost it, right? Like the man who sees the most incredible things that nobody wants to see, you know, can hold it all together, but he sees his cat pass away. And he goes and just absolutely loses it. So, they're, you know, watching them suffer in silence, we have a program that, you know, we, we set up a roll call training video that we help, you know, the individuals who are suffering understand how to put their hand up, that they're protected class. There's FMLA, the, the command staff, you know, aren't out there to get you and educating those individuals so that they can, you know, have their have their officers get the help that they need. I couldn't imagine what it's like after, you know, nine calls in a day and eight of them being just absolutely horrid and, you know, quote unquote, punching out for the day and not taking that home. So well, I, I, we, would, we had days where it was 30 and 40 calls a day. And uh, it, I couldn't just, imagine. it was from the minute you got in your car till the, you were done. And uh, most of them were nuisance calls, but then you had the real bad ones. And the ones, and that man with the backpack and the pebbles is absolutely correct. Those things don't go away. There's so much PTSD involved, right? Like I thought it was PTSD. I was uneducated, just like a lot of people are about drug addiction, mental health issues, um, just uneducated. And I thought that was some guy who served in, you know, Iraq or Vietnam and came home with some issues. And, you know, it's a real thing for first responders. And hearing some of the stories that 
I've heard it's you know it, it's just no wonder you're you're finishing your day with a fifth of vodka yeah. and waking up next to it because that's the only thing to get through that. And they were doing that, you know, from my research in history, they were doing police officers were doing that in the, the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way up to today. Again, this is. This is not new, and I'm by no means an expert on the, the law enforcement suicide. If I did, I'd have some answers. But part of the triad of what happens quite often is PTSD is a culprit, and then substance abuse, uh, over medic, self-medicating with alcohol, and uh, then you have family issues, marital issues, job issues, and then right. quite often they choose to end it all. And like I said, when they're, when, they're, when they're breathing in and out, there's hope. When they're not, there's nothing you can do. So this is where people like you and I need to have a conversation with all those people out there that are sick and suffering, whether it be law enforcement or not, and say, if you think you have a problem, if you've ever sat there to yourself and said, maybe I drink too much, the answer is you do. Because people right. who don't drink too much don't ask themselves that question. If, if you are one of those people that's suffering before the catastrophic incident at work, call Transformations and, and get some answers. Let me give you a number real quick. It's 888-991-9725. Transformations Treatment Center. 888-991-9725. Online at transformationstreatment.center. I, I do want to say this. The guy you talked about, Carlos Farina, incredible guy. The people at that facility, incredible, doing awesome things. Why do you think it's so important that they have a separate program for first responders and veterans? For, for two reasons, right? Like the first reason is because it, for to have segregated housing for just first responders, you're, lose, you're breaking that, that trust barrier down, right? Like there's going to be that automatic trust. You're not going to have a 19-year-old kid in there who you've been chasing your most of your career trying to tell you how to live your life in recovery. Um, you know, you're going to have people who have done the same things that you did, that you have done, you know, and you're going to be able to relate to them and get down to the core issues. Being vulnerable, once you finally put your hand up, being open and honest and candid and vulnerable to anything that could be, you know, that could possibly come up, you know, that 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 barrier is broken when you get in there and you see that these are, you're not alone in this, right? Like, you are not alone. There's people who suffer from the same thing you do. And they're in there getting help. And that's ultimately, you know, when you put your hand up where you're coming from. You know, when you said earlier, we're not there to label people. You're not you're not labeling me. We're here to bring the facts to you. It's up to you to decide who you are or what you are. More times than not, anybody who has an issue is normally the last one invited to their own quote unquote party. Right? Like the last one to know. I was the last one to know in my addiction. And everybody you was know, and everybody's painfully aware of what the reality was. Nick Gore, if people have questions, want to get in touch with you, what do they do? Can they contact you? Yeah, they can contact Transformations. Uh, Nick G at transformationstreatment.com is my email. 866-728-4216 is my direct dial. Um, you know, please, any questions, there's no such thing as a, as a bad question, right? That's all we can find out the answers. Nick, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. It's very much appreciated. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the time. If you want to tell your story, feel free to contact us. We'd love to have you as a guest on the Law Enforcement Today show. We made it so easy to get a hold of us, too. There's many different ways. Go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. The Contact Us page of the webpage. Download our free app. On our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. You can contact us through the free app. You can contact us on our Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram. 
heck, send me an email. My email address is J, that's J-A-Y, at lawenforcementtoday.com. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us here at Law Enforcement Today. On behalf of everyone associated with the show and the website, this is John J. Wiley. Until next time, see ya.